This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. It starts with the way we think about our world and our relationship in it. We all have a opportunity there to begin the work of asking those big questions. And that really means that we need to start listening again as a society, just listening without an agenda, listening without a specific need or desire. We're just listening. We just want everyone doing something, even if it is imperfect, but at least leading to the right way so that we can repair our planet. So the only thing we are sure about is our planet Earth, so you better save her. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hempel. This season, we're hearing from changemakers around the world, all working to create a better future. So if you're on the hunt for some innovative solutions to the world's biggest problems, then you've come to the right place. super interesting point in history right now. Yes, we've got a lot of serious global problems and threats to our environmental resources, but we also have the ability to change things. We're able to connect with people and communities all over the world like never before. We've got technology, we've got information and data, we've got no shortage of big ideas. But how do you actually create behavioral change, the building blocks of any good solution? What's that initial tiny spark that can light a wildfire? We've been telling stories since the beginning of humanity, but there's actually a lot of scientific research about the way storytelling affects our brains. So we're able to have like a truly scientifically empathetic experience when we hear or are part of a storytelling experience. That's Kate Tellers. She's a director at The Moth, a storytelling collective and nonprofit in New York City. She's also just co-written a fascinating book called How to Tell a Story, The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling. So she knows a thing or two about bringing big ideas to life. Well, I think one of the most powerful tools of storytelling is that it allows us to really get to know and get inside of the way a person is genuinely feeling. There's a real value in authenticity and truth in storytelling that I think transcends the ability to share facts back and forth. We don't usually remember many hard facts and statistics from a conversation, but we'll always remember how something made us feel. So how do you tell a compelling story about climate change? So if someone says, you know, for example, I'm an environmental change activist and I want to tell this story, sometimes it's, well, what's the scene that I really need to include? How has this experience changed me? Then you think, well, what's the through line that's running through this story? First things first, she said, you have to get specific. I think everything big can become an abstraction. If everything is bad, 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 it's in the abstract. But if we can understand really specifically someone's experience with climate change, then we can relate to that. We can say, oh, I've also felt despair. I have also felt like, you know, I uh, I was in the threat of losing my home. I've also felt attached to something that was being taken away from me or however the story is being told. So I think for any of us that are looking to affect change, to mobilize people, to inspire action, it's going back to, well, why do I care? What was the incident or an incident that made me care? Ironically, it's those very specific, vulnerable, personal details that actually help to create a more universally relatable story. 
there is a commonality to the human experience. We share similar emotional responses. We share disappointment, sadness, happiness, fear. Like these are common things. So a very specific story can sort of sync someone up and really orient them into where the storyteller is. That specificity almost makes the story more universal because the listener then knows, well, this is how I relate to this. This is what's different, but here's what's similar. And we, we take those incremental shifts together in tandem because the storyteller has oriented us so clearly as to where they are. Okay, so you can tell a personal story, but how do you make it a great story? A great story is obviously one that will make people an active listener more quickly than, you know, perhaps one that is still finding its sea legs. But I think, yeah, we certainly have a responsibility, um, I think, as human beings to seek out and to listen to stories, particularly stories of people with a different experience than our own. And to sort of what I find is like stories beget stories. So once you begin to be interested in other stories, other experiences, there's sort of a hunger to keep discovering and discovering more, which is truly gorgeous. For today's environmental and climate activists, finding real-life solutions to global problems is an ongoing challenge. My name is Nicole Redvers, and I'm a member of the Deninukwe First Nation, which is an indigenous peoples in the subarctic region of Canada in a land called Denade, or now known as the Northwest Territories. Dr. Redvers is an assistant professor at the University of Western Ontario and the co-founder of the Arctic Indigenous Wellness Foundation. Her work promoting the inclusion of indigenous perspectives in planetary health and education policy is heavily intertwined with the power of storytelling. The storytelling is really the connection to to everything. And even from, you know, if we, we think about a, a research methodology and, and the, the types of narratives that we, we house and we hold and we seek to analyze, well, stories are our method, so to speak. Stories are the method of existence. The, the stories are our connection to the past. Um, but stories are also very complex. And, and in many cases, the stories that are shared have many different levels to them. It's just a beautiful way to, to communicate knowledge. And it helps you remember things. And it, it inspires you, you know, stories are those things that can get inside and really motivate you to make change. So they're very powerful. Indigenous cultures make up only 6% of the world's population, but they're responsible for stewarding around 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity and a third of the last remaining old growth forests. That's not an accident by any means. That's because of the knowledge housed within Indigenous communities that have been owned and practiced and honored over generations to ensure a healthy planet, not only for Indigenous communities, but a healthy planet for all. We are in and of itself nature. And I think that's a very powerful way of looking at ourselves, being innately connected to those elements and not separate from them. But indigenous wisdom and ideas have historically been passed down through language, and specifically indigenous languages, many of which have been forcibly wiped out by colonialism. It's an under-minimized conversation, and I often ask, you know, rooms of funders and people to see how many of them have thought of language as being a solution to climate change. And of course, the majority of them don't even conceptualize that as, as being a solution. 
But one of the reasons for that is that our indigenous languages are completely and fundamentally rooted within the lands that we come from. So the teachings about the land, the lessons, those solutions, everything's housed within those languages. And the beautiful thing about indigenous languages is that they're verb-based, they're not noun-based. Dr. Redvers explained that the indigenous words used for different plants, animals, and insects have active teachings, signifiers, and stories built into the names. So when we lose those languages, we lose the taxonomies, we lose the connections, the teachings that come with that, the worldview of how we see the world. Um, So I absolutely fundamentally believe that one of the most important things for climate change going forward is to ensure the preservation uh, and transmission of Indigenous knowledges, which we are right now losing at such an incredible rate. So how can the rest of the world learn from and protect Indigenous knowledge and culture without appropriating, destroying or exploiting it? Well, one of the lessons that Dr. Redvers called to mind was... was a teaching by an elder who stated very simply that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, And that really means that we need to start listening again as a society, just listening without an agenda, listening uh, without, you know, a, a specific need or desire. We're just listening. And most importantly, including Indigenous peoples at the policy tables, at government tables, and and just any other table where decisions about the environment are being made. Particularly in the national and international dialogues and discussion around climate change, we really haven't had Indigenous people been able to participate as voting members. So communities are, are really just doing their very best with what they have to try to ensure that the knowledge is captured uh, for the next generations to come. But it definitely is an uphill battle, depending on the political circumstances that exist around communities, depending on whether or not they have been evicted from their lands, removed from their lands, uh, whether or not they have had uh, certain events comparatively to others, whether or not it's uh, violent uprising, resource extraction activities, mining companies, those types of things. All of those contextual factors really make an impact for how easy it is for communities to go through and start that revitalization, reconnection process, or just create the connections of of how knowledge is communicated from elders to youth and children. Community elders facilitate the connection between their ancestors and the next generation. But now there's a new kind of connection that they also have to navigate, modern technology. There's an elder um, that had shared kind of a funny story to my father, who basically said we went from fishnets to the internet (laughs) very quickly. When it comes to change and progress, have we perhaps lost sight of what the actual goal is? That's funny how the the world works. You know, we we get lost in our complexity sometimes, thinking that we need new innovations and solutions. But in fact, sometimes the lessons are right within ourselves or within our communities. We just haven't looked at them appropriately. And and that fits very well with even many contemplative traditions and, and even religions around the world where, you know, this looking inwards really is looking outwards. And I, I strongly believe that many of the things that we need to do as, as a human race are already there. We, we know them. They're, they're embodied within communities and cultures around the world. We, we've just been disconnected from them for a very long time in Western societies. And some of the most profound lessons, she explains, involve how we understand our relationship to nature. 
Yeah, I think this idea of, of nature as an externality, nature as being something outside of ourselves is, is a common embodiment. Even how we talk about it, we're going out in nature, we're going out you know, for a walk. It's sort of this, this external thing from us. Whereas in communities, nature is not looked at as something separate. We are in and of itself nature. We are nature. When you stop to think about it, Redvers says, 60% of the human body is made up of water. And that means that the water that is inside of us right now was once housed in a river, in a lake, in an aquifer. It was part of nature. But for many vulnerable communities around the world, trying to protect the environment is a double-edged sword. In many cases and in many countries, it means death as a possibility when you do stand up for the rights of, of Mother Earth. But we do need more government uh, pressure around the world to ensure the safe protection of environmental rights activists in countries where the risk of violence um, against families and, and themselves are very high. There's also the ongoing frustration for Indigenous activists that the positive stories being told about progress, inclusion and funding solutions don't actually match up to the reality of what's going on. There was a good analysis that was done uh, previously that demonstrated it was well under 1% of the entire climate funding was going to Indigenous peoples or getting to Indigenous peoples on the ground. And that is, is shameful in my mind, given the importance of the work and the large impact that they're having um, for not only climate mitigation, but also for ad adaptation responses in many places in the world that uh, less than 1% is just not cutting it. Redford says that committing to the process of self-educating about colonialism is also crucial. Really, you know, reminiscent of a, a quote that was done by Justice Sinclair, who's a Canadian uh, lawyer involved in some of the reconciliation work. And he said, education got us into this mess and education will get us out. And, you know, Dr. Donald Warren, who's a Lakota physician, will say, if we want to get to true equity, we need to walk through truth. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Getting to the truth through storytelling is what first got 31-year-old Winnie Cheche involved in her wildlife activism in Kenya. So it was a funny story. We had some elephant which had like were destroying a farm and then all the media houses like they had this common headline like it was some said confused elephants and some said stray elephants and that the, that headline kind of rubbed me in a wrong way because like elephants are intelligent animals. They are not confused and they're never going to be stray. They know what they're doing. And these uh, lands that they had visited, they were previously their corridors and dispersal areas. So yes, they're not confused animals. It's just that they didn't know we were going to occupy those areas. So it was so wrong for them and putting it negative that this is a confused elephant that visited the land. As Cheche saw it, this was a story about humans destroying animal habitat and not taking responsibility for the problems they'd caused. Blaming the elephants didn't feel like the right narrative. So she got on Twitter and started tweeting the other side of the story, 
As her audience grew, she started a blog to advocate for wildlife conservation. Now she's the communication lead at Kenya Environmental Action Network. Wildlife welfare goes hand in hand while addressing climate change. Because if you don't address climate change, everything is going to be lost and we will not have like anywhere to fall back into because agriculture is gone, tourism is gone. Kenya's been experiencing some of the worst droughts in 40 years, killing off hundreds of wildebeest, zebras and elephants. Even when you're checking your news, how many times do you see anyone going checking like how many wildlife have been affected? We rarely do that. We go, we save the people, we save their livestock and everything, which is great. But what happens to wildlife? They're left for that fate. So you can imagine like it is like fencing someone in a burning house and you don't care to go and save them. So wildlife have been left again. So for me, when it comes to even to climate activism, I came into it to just remind everyone that wildlife is part of the ecosystem and they really need to be protected. In Kenya, most people work either in agriculture or in tourism. So as Cheche sees it, the welfare of wildlife is inextricably linked to the welfare of people. So if wildlife is to go away and we know extinction is forever, there's no comeback, so that means tourism is dead. And if tourism is dead, that is someone's livelihood. So those are jobs that are going to be lost. Those are like opportunities that are going to go forever. And we know like apart from agriculture, we have the tourism and both of them are being affected by climate change adversely. So like in agriculture, we no longer practice traditional farming, which is affordable by most of the farmers. So that means our food security is at risk. So apart from being a farmer, so if you can still not be able to like benefit from tourism of wildlife, so that means you have been cut both hands. So how do you feed yourself? So the only thing we can protect is what we have. And what we have is that wildlife that you can be able to like benefit from it for what the tourism come and does that, how we interact with everyone. So that's how like wildlife comes in and helps in the GBT. Getting people to see the long-term impact of short-term policies can also be frustrating. While social media activism can reach a lot of people, Cheche says it doesn't necessarily lead to meaningful change, especially when it comes to holding politicians or people in power accountable. So you find that in the next day when they're doing their speeches, almost 80% is going to be controlled with what you say because they want us to be happy with what they say. So they're going to say what we want to hear. I think we are yet to get like real action. I can say we are maybe at 15% because most of the time they will just say to shushu so that you can just remain down and don't say anything about it because they know once they put on the paper, they'll be accountable too. So they don't do that. So they keep telling us what to hear. That doesn't mean she'll give up pushing and campaigning though. When you face problems that are, are created by our collective issues, it is our responsibility to ensure that we correct that. And correcting that means that when you are passing policies, we are not putting profits first. We think about the planet, we think about the people, then the profits can come afterwards. But let's understand that life is important. And if I don't have people who are backing up, if I don't have people understanding, why am I fighting this fight? I will just die a useless human being because I will not have like impacted the change that I want. Good storytelling is important to champion the activism wins too. Three years ago, Kenya passed the world's toughest ban on single-use plastic bags, with hefty fines for anyone caught manufacturing them. Initially, there was a lot of pushback. People said it would never work. But now, other countries are looking to follow in Kenya's footsteps, and the country is much cleaner. 
Being an activist can also be a bit thankless sometimes, Cheche says, with opponents often working hard to discredit or undermine them. She said they're referred to as troublemakers in Kenya. According to everyone's notion, activists are seen like people who make noise, people who love uh, chaos. Even employers, if you tell someone that you are an activist, there's a high chance that they're not going to employ you because they see it on a bad light. What they don't understand is an activist have decided to lose everything just to for the right thing to happen and for to speak up for something that doesn't have a voice or something that needs to be done. So we need more people supporting activism and understanding being part of it is not being an enemy to a person, but you're trying to show that to remind the world that there's someone, there's someone you're forgetting out here and they need to be heard. I just hope like everyone can really get that and do the right thing. As a way to reduce the climate anxiety she's been feeling, Cheche's been focusing on the next generation. A lot of her time is now spent educating children about climate change and what they can do to help. Learning empathy, she says, is crucial to finding climate solutions. Even if you don't believe in climate change, you don't believe in anything, just go do it. Just dare yourself. Just like go say, let me go and see if, what is the fuss about it and get to understand what is happening. The worst thing you can do to yourself is losing hope. Because, you know, sometimes even they say like when you're, you're, when you're hanging on that, that grass, you know very well it can't save you. But the stupid hope keeps you hope alive. So I think the thing will be let's keep the hope alive and keep fighting. Because the moment you give up, you'll stop fighting. And you know, you may lose today, but you may win tomorrow. I think one of the biggest challenges we face right now is like a a lack of imagination. And that comes perhaps from our our, our political leadership. Finn Harries and his identical twin, Jack, grew up going to environmental protests with their mum. In 2011, the Harries brothers created a YouTube channel posting videos of their travels around the world. Tapping into the power of visual storytelling quickly amassed them millions of views and subscribers. But as their audience grew, so did the sense of responsibility about the kind of stories they wanted to tell. So we both went on our own journey, starting to learn more about the climate crisis. And like most people, I spent many years just sort of pushing it out the way, putting my head in the sand. They teamed up with documentary photographer Alice Eady to try and create a new kind of platform for storytelling. The sort of resource that we felt was missing when we started learning about this. We wanted to create a place that broke down some of the complex information, but perhaps more importantly, painted an optimistic narrative for for where we might be headed. The result was Earthrise Studio, bringing together designers, filmmakers, writers and artists, all focused on the urgency of protecting the environment. We're trying to create media that paints a picture of that. That's a metaphor that we use that suggests Earthrise is a bridge that bridges between the now and the future. And it's a bridge so beautiful that people can't resist but cross it. That's the sort of ambition of what we're trying to build. Harris has also been focusing on how we can build back better. This past year, he graduated from the University of Cambridge with a master's degree in philosophy, architecture and urban design and a newfound determination to generate meaningful change. The climate crisis isn't the problem, it's a symptom of a broken system. We know we need to change the systems. And in these leverage points, they go in order of effectiveness, and the most effective are mindsets, um, the ability to recognize that the paradigm we're living in, and by paradigm, I just mean like a sort of a collective narrative or story, needs to shift. 
While studying during the pandemic, Harris came across the work of an ecologist called C.S. Holling. An idea called the adaptive cycle helped him to reframe his own narrative around the climate crisis. I had previously understood or thought about the future as a line, and it was a line with quite a horrible ending. And I think that's where my sense of depression and anxiety was coming from, that we were just sort of inevitably headed towards a worse place than the one we're in now. And what he suggests are that all systems, both natural and human, move through this four-stage process. So it's a phase of growth, conservation, collapse, and then reorganization. And it looks like a never-ending infinity loop. And the reason that was so profound for me is it shifted my thinking into that phase of reorganization. It made me realize that while the climate crisis and everything uh, related to it is a really daunting time to be living through, on the other side of that is there's a transition process and then there's a sort of reorganization where we meet these new conditions that we're facing. And that's where regenerative design or regenerative cultures, which is something I've been looking at, come into play. It's a sort of surprisingly optimistic thought process that we all have an opportunity to contribute to uh, navigating this transition that we're in the middle of. Like Dr. Nicole Redvers and Winnie Cheche, Harris agrees that tackling the climate crisis can't happen without adapting our individual mindsets. Well, perhaps it would be recognizing that we are nature, that we are fundamentally part of natural systems, and that rather than working against them, rather than working to control them, we need to work with them in a sort of reciprocal embedded relationship with, with the living world. And so that's the first place to start. And the next chapter involves adapting. I think a lot of the previous narrative have been about stopping the climate crisis or avoiding the climate crisis. The stage we're at now is such that um, some degree of change is locked in. And so one of the best things we can be doing, if we frame it in the right way, is um, preparing for uh, whether that's mass migration or warmer temperatures, um, transitioning away from fossil fuel-based energy. So what can future generations of storytellers do when it comes to climate activism? I think we have a responsibility, particularly in media, but in many industries, to acknowledge that for too long we've silenced voices and minority groups. So I think that's a transition that needs to happen where we acknowledge um, that perhaps we, we don't know as much as we thought we did and that there's a lot to be learned. And often there are many cultures who are marginalized, who, are, who aren't able to express their opinion or, or sort of um, show uh, their experience of, of what's happening at the moment. And so we feel really passionate about being able to, to turn the camera around and, and share those. For Harry's, building resilience means building a storytelling community that values different kinds of skills and experiences. There's a group of us now who are multidisciplinary, who come from diverse backgrounds. And I think through that process, we've learned to really check ourselves, to ask for opinions and help, to fact check the work we're putting out there. And so I think collectively, uh, particularly for creators online, that we have a responsibility to try and build a, a stronger framework uh, around the content we're making to make sure it, it's truthful, uh, considered, <laughs> and, and having the sort of impact that we are intending. Okay, so how should we craft our world-changing story? So I think for any of us that are looking to affect change, to mobilize people, to inspire action, it's going back to, well, why do I care? What was the incident or an incident that made me care? And then how can I share that story? I think that 
people are starting to question the traditional narratives of how we're supposed to live our lives, the jobs we're supposed to get, what's, you know, the, the ideas of success and happiness that we've been fed perhaps aren't accurate or relevant today. And so I'm really curious to see people start to redefine that. And together, we can make things happen. But if we remain silent, then everything is going to pass by and no one is going to hold anyone accountable. I strongly believe that many of the things that we need to do as a human race are already there. We know them. They're embodied within communities and cultures around the world. We've just been disconnected from them for a very long time in Western societies. Okay, that's it for our show today. I'm Amelia Hempel, and we want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. Who are the climate activists telling the most inspiring stories? Let us know on Instagram or TikTok. And please leave us comments and reviews and all of the stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres, Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer, editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis, and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. <laughs>